0: Welcome you all on the behalf of Team India First to our discussion of the day, the maritime history of India. India First, as you know, is a public discussion forum which was floated around three years back and it was floated because a bunch of us thought that the public discussion in JNU is going downhill. It is, It is going to a part of anarchism which we have seen in the last few years. So India First, as a forum, was aimed at reviving the JNU legacy of debate and discussion. For which it is known for. And we, at JNU we all know that history is a very hot topic for the JNU students. They always discuss the past and present and the future as well, maybe. But as the history we discuss in this campus, we are always missing out certain things. In our discussion in history, the tribal history, in public history, is always lacking. In our discussion of history, the history of technology is always lacking. In our discussion of history, India's interaction with the world is always like. As we know, India has always been a trading civilization. Since the Harappan times, India has been having contacts with all the partners of the world, from the Roman Empire, to Arabia, to Africa, to Southeast Asia. And this interaction has shaped India's civilization in a decisive manner. So to discuss on this issue, we have with us Sanjeev Sanya, who hardly needs an introduction. is a leading financial economist. And he's also a best selling author. His book, Bank of Seven Rewards, uh, History of India's Geography, is one of the best selling history books in India. So I request Sanjeev, please come and give his talk.
1: Thank you, Abhinav. Uh, uh, I'm a little concerned um, that I have been uh, asked to bring order to disorder. None of my students through my uh, educational career would have believed, uh, none of my teachers in my educational career would have believed that I would be called on to do something like that. The theme of my talk today uh, is the maritime history of India. And the reason I think it may be interesting to uh, many of you is that uh, India is one of the great maritime uh, countries in the world through history. And unfortunately, much of the history that we learn in our textbooks is very much continental oriented. So if, if you aren't a specialist, uh, you could be forgiven for thinking that Indian history uh, is really about a series of dynasties who ruled Pataliputra followed by a series of dynasties who ruled Delhi all the way to the present day. So my idea is to hopefully give you some flavor of another, another history. And it is not just a theoretical, uh, sentimental view of history because it has genuine uh, implications for the way we look, think about our world today. Because if you take a continental, sort of Delhi centric view of uh, Indian history, you will get the impression that our neighbors, our neighborhood, is about <coughs> China and Pakistan. But if, in fact, uh, if you think about a maritime worldview, then Our neighbors are Indonesia on one side, Oman on the other side, I am not just taking into account of Sri Lanka and Maldives but even further out perhaps as far as Vietnam because that is sort of in a sense the ecosystem of our history. And so I am going to give you a flavor of that, I don't have a very long period of time and I don't want to bore you with a long uh, monologue. So I I will be necessarily selective in the way I am going through it uh, just to keep the story flowing. But um, hopefully I will be able to give you some sense of it. Uh, incidentally, what I am talking about is to some extent derived uh, f- uh, s- uh, from a book I will be publishing later this year. Uh, on the, uh, it's called the Brief History of India's Geography. I, it has a main title, but we haven't yet decided on that. But it's a Brief History of India's Geography. Now, the landscape of the Indian Ocean <coughs> that we are going to deal with one thing to remember about it is that it is a living landscape, it is not a dead landscape, the coastlines are continuously changing due to tectonic as well as rising and shifting uh, uh, shorelines and this is a very important thing to remember uh, as, we, as we go through uh, uh, much of what I will speak about. Now if you came to um, the, this part of the world, uh, uh, the, the Indian Ocean Rim, Uh, During the last ice age, which is more than uh, 8-9 thousand years ago when it ended, but really at its peak about 14 uh, 14, thousand years ago, uh, the coastline that you would have seen would have been very very different. Much of the world's water was stuffed in these massive ice sheets that were covering um, much of the northern hemisphere but also parts of the southern hemisphere and the, the water level was as much as between 100 to 150 feet, uh, meters below where it is now. So as a result, um, for example, the, the, all of the Persian Gulf was actually a flat plain. Uh, what you see now as Gujarat was well inside inland and the coastline kind of was a straight line which kind of went down south. Um, Sri Lanka was a part of the Indian mainland. And all of the islands of uh, Southeast Asia, almost all of them were part of one large uh, uh, land mass which we now call Sundaland. In fact, um, the ancestors of the Australian Aborigines actually literally walked across all of Southeast Asia and then made a small hop across to Australia. So that was the landscape. Now, starting around um, 12,000 years ago, uh, these melting uh, 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 glaciers and ice sheets began to fill out these, uh, these um, coastlines and from around 12,000 years ago, you have for example the Persian Gulf getting uh, flooded, uh, the Indian coastline getting flooded, uh, ultimately Sri Lanka getting se- separated from uh, India and so on. And <coughs> it is possible that the memory of this event because it's quite a catastrophic event, is remembered in the flood myths of almost all cultures across the world. So, of course, there is the story of Noah, uh, but also there is the Sumerian story of Gilgamesh. Um, the Australian uh, Aborigines have a flood myth. Um, the Laotians uh, in Southeast Asia have a flood myth. And, of course, we also have a flood myth the story of Manu and uh, Matsya Avatar. The first, uh, <coughs> the first avatar of Vishnu. So there are all these flood myths, uh, very difficult to tell exact history from it, but it is tempting at least to believe that it may be a memory of, uh, of uh, these times. But certainly by about uh, 5000 BC or so, thereabouts, the coastline began to sort of resemble the coastline that we would be familiar with, but it would still be somewhat different. I'm going to start with Gujarat because my story will start with Gujarat and the coastline of Gujarat during Harappan times would have been quite different even from now, people think that sea levels rise in a sort of linear way and then fall in a linear way, that's actually not how it works, within those big uh, falls and rises there are lots of variations. so during Harappan times sea levels uh, were in fact a little bit higher than they are right now and the Saurashtra Peninsula was, uh, in fact, um, an island. And you could actually go from the, uh, <coughs> the Gulf of Kombatt uh, through uh, uh, past uh, Saurashtra into what was the run of Kutch, because the run of Kutch was actually navigable. And in fact, not only was it navigable, it had two major rivers flowing into it. There was the Indus, uh, which originally used to flow, in fact, till the 19th century used to flow into the run of Kutch. And of course there was this massive river, the Saraswati which also flowed into this and satellite photographs clearly show that these two rivers flowed into it, even today you can uh, with a little bit of messing around you can tell that there are these two uh, old channels going into it. And of course weather, weather uh, was, uh, climate was also quite uh, different, it was significantly wetter than it is now. So what is now Balochistan was a um, savanna type area much of early human migrations actually happened through Balochistan. This is important to remember because today it's such impossible desert that we tend to think of that, you know, people couldn't simply be going back and forth, that if you wanted uh, in pre-modern times to go from Iran to India, you would actually have to go through Afghanistan. That is in fact not the case through uh, much of history. So anyway, so you had this um, coastline and in that coastline, Cities begin to spring up in the, in the uh, fourth and then third millennium uh, BC, where they really begin to sprout out. And the largest of this that we have so far discovered is a city called Dholavira. Now, Dholavira is today well inland uh, in the run of Kutch. As I mentioned, the run of Kutch is now a salt plain, which occasionally has its marshy in the monsoons, but otherwise, a salt plain and Dholavira is sort of like a hillock in the marooned in the middle of this salt plain. But in Harappan times, it would have been (coughs) an island and it developed then into a major port. But there were other ports as well and one of the other ports was Lothal, which I am sure all of you from your history books will remember. It had this (coughs) dry docks and so on, but the map of uh, Gujarat that I just Laid in front of you, suggests that in fact it should have been possible to go from Lothal to Dholavira by boat and similarly there was on the other side, on the northern side, an entry from what is now Dwarka where there was a, an, there's still an island there called Bet Dwarka, where also a lot of Harappan artifacts have been found. So obviously we are guessing but it seems like basically what was going on that there was this network of ports in Gujarat. Where they were sailing back and forth out of it, those coming from the south would probably have gone through Lothal which was possibly a customs post before you reach Dholavira and there was probably another customs post for those people who coming in from the west uh, at Bait Dwarka and then they made their way to Dholavira, probably did some trading Um, and then perhaps some of these chaps made their way up north um, through the Indus and while the Saraswati was flowing up to Saraswati as well. Now who were these chaps trading with? Now we have very good evidence that they were trading at least with the following places because a lot of uh, seals and Harappan goods have been found all along these areas. One of them is Oman. There is a lot of Harappan artifacts found scattered all over Iran, further inland in Bahrain, across uh, uh, the… uh, straits in Iran, in eastern Iran there is a newly discovered civilization called Jiroft. Uh, we don't know what they call themselves but the area is called Jiroft so it's called the Jiroft civilization. Uh, it's quite possible that given where their location is it's really far to the east of Iran uh, and it's very very close to uh, several Harappan sites that have been found in Balochistan that they they may have been uh, culturally some links bet- not only cultural links but they may even have been even probably the same people who were passing back and forth across what I would call as the Indo-Iranian continuum. And then further out towards Mesopotamia, there were all these uh, settlements uh, going all the way up the Sumerian settlements and in many of them um, seals and other Harappan artifacts have also been found. In fact they have even found uh, the records of a people called the Meluha. Uh, who the uh, Sumerians claim to have been trading with, which sounds like they were Indians, there are many indications they were possibly uh, the Harappans and there were even uh, a story about some settlements uh, of Harappans living there. So the business of Indians living in the Middle East uh, is not a new thing, we have been, we have been going to the Middle East uh, for a long long time and uh, settle, settling there. So that is kind of how things were, uh, happily trudling along. Still, something really bad happened. Around about 2000 BC and there's plenty of evidence of this, around about 2000 BC there was a major climatic change worldwide and this is clearly shown not just in Poland records and other scientific things, it actually shows through even in Akkadian records where they have tells us that this really bad droughts were happening. And roughly at this time, the Saraswati river, which incidentally at this point had already whittled down quite a lot, simply disappears and a large number of the settlements in and around that area uh, simply begin to be abandoned. Uh, Incidentally, the old kingdom of Egypt also collapses at about this time and we suddenly see a dramatic drop in the number of Harappan at artifacts that show show up uh, in all these areas. Clearly, the trade systems in this were breaking down. Now, just as an aside, um, we have never found any uh, Mid- uh, Middle Eastern uh, artifacts or even Central Asian artifacts in any Harappan site. So, this is very mysterious because although the Harappans were clearly exporting stuff, including people, uh, it's entirely unclear what on earth they were importing. Anyway. With the collapse of these Harappan cities, we have clear signs that there was migration uh, southward uh, towards the Narmada, there was also a migration out towards the Gangetic Plains, Uh, some of these sites, many of these sites show great amount of cultural continuity into what is called the later Harappan and then it fuses through later through to the Gangetic uh, uh, civilizations. But I am not going to go into that because my interest is maritime. Now what happens, and this is where it now it gets more interesting, because you will be probably quite familiar with much of what I've just talked about. Now what happens is that suddenly central and southern India come alive. Now till this point, for some reason, we, uh, to the evidence that we have, southern India doesn't really go through a bronze age. Now Harappans and all these, these, these civilizations that I mentioned were all bronze age civilizations and for some reason. There wasn't much of a Bronze Age in Southern India and you suddenly have, (coughs) at about the time that the Harappan civilization was falling apart, the Iron Age suddenly appears on Southern India. They simply skip the Bronze Age and go into the Iron Age and this is very fascinating because the old idea was that these Iron implements and other, Iron Age essentially came to India along with these so-called Aryans coming thundering down from Central Asia and it turns out that the earliest place where iron was actually found and used systematically is not even in Northern India but in and around what is now Hyderabad, in fact just a year ago uh, some of (coughs) the oldest iron implements anywhere in the world have been found in fact inside Hyderabad University campus and um, so that was uh, basically what is happening but uh, Meanwhile, a little further to the east, you have an absolute explosion of <coughs> maritime activity that begins to now happen in what is now Odisha and West Bengal. The zone from the westernmost outlet of the Ganga which is um, uh, the one that we now call Hooghly, all down the coast towards, uh, uh, towards Chilika Lake, that coastline now just bursts out with activity. In fact, uh, uh, very very recently, like literally a f- few weeks back, a major new uh, site which is about 1500 years old has been found just outside of uh, Bhubaneshwar, a small town that has been found but there are many many smaller ports all along the coast and the Uriya now begin to do these major voyages, firstly they begin to go slowly along the coast. so some of these Odia uh, sailors and merchants make their way slowly down the coast and certainly by about the 5th, 6th century BC, they begin to turn up in Sri Lanka and this is quite interesting because you would think that the people who would begin to populate Sri Lanka would be the Tamils and the Keralites who are right next door and they possibly did go to the northern bits but the first clear s- signs of what would you call civilization so to speak this uh, turns up with uh, these people who are clearly coming from significantly further out. Now there were already some people living there, the, called the Veddas, but the major group of people suddenly begin to turn up. And they are not just going down south, they are also going down the other way, along the coast towards Southeast Asia, to a place where, where the Isthmus of Kra, this is the, basically the thin strip of land w- from which Malaysia hangs off, near, It's now in Thailand and they are going over there and then some of them just hop across and then begin to sail across the Gulf of Thailand towards um, uh, Vietnam, southern Vietnam and Cambodia. We now actually have some records at least in oral histories and some inscriptions and in old uh, uh, mythologies of what was possibly going on. In fact the founding myth of the Sinhalese of Sri Lanka is in fact the story of Prince Vijaya who um, claimed to be the grandson of uh, a lion and a princess a bit of the story that I have some suspicions about he basically takes 400 or so of his uh, followers, he's thrown out by his father by the way for behaving particularly badly and he makes his way down the coast and he turns up in Sri Lanka and it is quite interesting that these people then begin to settle in and the majority population of Sri Lanka today takes its roots back to this migration of people, of course this must have been many migrations afterwards but they take their roots back to this migration and they bring with them very interesting uh, cultural motifs that are still alive, let's take for example the idea of the lion, now the lion is there in the Sri Lankan flag but where did it come from? Now if you go to Odisha <coughs> and wander around in some of the more older uh, sort of settlements of Odisha, one of the things that will strike you is that m- all, many of them have got Narasimha temples. This is also true of Andhra by the way. Even in Puri, the older temple is not that to Jagannath but to Narasimha and even today when the Bhog is first served, it's not taken directly to na- uh, to to uh, Jagannath but is actually taken first to Narasimha. So the worship of Narasimha or some sort of a veneration of the lion was clearly a very important part of the culture of that area which is all very odd because that is all tiger territory now. But there is also incidentally signs of that in Bengal uh, which is also tiger territory Uh, but again uh, of course that veneration of the lion continues to this day because um, Durga's Vahan is a lion. So I I, I cannot explain why it is that maybe familiarity breeds contempt, so they they didn't think much of the tiger uh, or maybe the climate was different and maybe there were more lions there, I do not know. But it is the case that there are plenty of lions in the iconography of this part of the world and that gets transferred and has survived to this day uh, in the Sri Lankan flag. Now similar thing begins to happen on the other side as these guys begin to trade. Uh, with uh, f- uh, that uh, Southeast Asia as well and it is quite fascinating the name the, they begin to give this and I will come back to this, they begin to call in, in, in the Indic literature the term Naga is very very uh, commonly used for the people of the snake, the people of the serpent and it seems to be systematically used for people of with oriental features. Why? Because, as you will see, it is a very important part of the iconography of Southeast Asia and how does this, what is the stories that uh, are are remembered from this time that tell uh, tell us about this. So, there is a story which is very common in the inscriptions of Cambodia, Vietnam uh, and so on, where later, much later the Angkor and Cham uh, empires rose. the story goes somewhat like this that there was a indian brahmin called kondinya who was sailing past the coast of uh, what is now uh, southern vietnam um, and uh, southern cambodia uh, in the mekong uh, area and he was attacked he, he was in the ship he was sailing past with this bunch of traders and he was attacked by these pirates and he being a heroic chap he f- fought off the um, the uh, pirates and um, uh, drove them away, unfortunately what happened is that the ship was leaking as a result of this and the, he, had, he and his uh, crew had to uh, take it onto the shore in order to try and repair it. So when they were doing this, uh, the local tribe which were the, they were the snake clan uh, decided that they would attack them so evidently they were surrounded and yet again India, being a brave lad took out his sword and, uh, and was defending himself when the princess of the snake clan saw him and fell in love, her name, there are many names according to different traditions but one of the names that is often used is Soma, so Soma the moon faced one saw him and fell in love and proposed marriage to him and so Kondinyam, I suppose he didn't have too much of a choice but Um, He married her and started a dynasty um, which led ultimately to the foundation of these great, um, much much later to the great Angkor and um, the Khmer civilization and of course the Cham civilization in southern Vietnam. What is fascinating about it also is that most of these lineages were matrilineal, not matriarchal, matrilineal i.e. they trace their lineage through the female line which is also reasonable because after all Kondinya's uh, rise to uh, claim to royalty was through his wife and it's quite interesting this kind of continues to be remembered uh, through for the next thousand years plus because you can clearly see that many of the kings come to power both in the Khmer and in the Chams through the female line so this remains embedded and this story then becomes the sort of the key myth on which much of Southeast Asian uh, culture is built. It is matrilineal, but also the iconography of the uh, snake. So, and you see that everywhere. So, in northern uh, uh, um, Malaysia, uh, you have uh, a major uh, site uh, <coughs> called in the Bujang Valley, in a place what was the kingdom of Kadaram. Now. Think about this, it's called Bhujang Valley. Bhujang means snake, snake valley. And this term comes up everywhere. Later on, much, much later, when the Cholas would create ports to, to trade with Southeast Asia, what would their port be called? It would be called Nagapatnam. So it's very, very important the iconography of the snake uh, and the importance of it, which I will uh, show you. Now, somewhere down the line, the Odia discovered <coughs> that. This business of sailing along the coast was just too cumbersome and I suppose somebody who went down and that it was much much easier to in fact rather than try and go along the coast to Southeast Asia, it would be much easier to actually sail down south using the the winter monsoon to Sri Lanka and then use the currents that are equatorial currents to go across to Sumatra and Java and so on. So now, what happens? It's quite an interesting change in the orientation of Indian trade with Southeast Asia. Earlier, it was through uh, Thailand, the isthmus of Kra, to Vietnam. Now, it's suddenly a reorient, going south to Sri Lanka, and then swinging across using the current to um, to Java, to Bali, to Sumatra, and so on. And there also, you see this explosion of Indic culture. Uh, happen uh, at this time. Now what is interesting is while it is all very obvious in, if you go to you know Bali or Java etc, the enormous amount of uh, Indians uh, influence uh, clearly suggests, shows you how much uh, cultural flow was going back and forth, but very often in our, uh, in, in India we tend to assume that this was due to much much later Tamil influence, that is not the case. The real great pioneers of the Eastern Indian Ocean are really the Udiya. And it shows through in many other things. The slang word to this day used for Indians in much of Southeast Asia is the word Klinga. Of course now it is, has a slightly derogatory uh, meaning, but the word Klinga or Kalinga obviously derived from Kalinga uh, is the slang word used or the word used for Indians. Um, The word for West in all malay languages is bharat so you can see that there is clearly memory on the indonesian side why they have even named their uh, their country after india so there's clear memory on uh, the southeast asian side now what is the memory that we have on our side of that period and interestingly it actually lives very much uh, in many many ways which till very recently we, even though it was right in front of our eyes, we didn't um, fully appreciate. Now, the, one of the biggest festivals of Odisha is Kartik Purnima. Now, what happens in Kartik Purnima? In Kartik Purnima, <coughs> basically, when the Purnima happens, you're supposed to get up before sunrise, and particularly the women and children are supposed to go to the river or sea or water body, and put a small boat with a diya in it into the. Uh, Uh, into the river or or water body. Now what is the significance of this? The significance of this is the following, you see, around about Kartik Punyama, what happens? The winds change, they stop flowing from south to north and begin blowing from north to south. So what is going on? So basically this is the point at which the Udiya Sailors used to go off on their voyage. So that was basically what are they doing, the family is saying goodbye to the sailors as, and the merchants as they are setting sail. And about at the same time in Katak even today, there is a fair called Bali Yatra, which literally means the journey to Bali. Just think about this, this is real civilizational memory right in front of our face and I have witnessed this myself a couple of years ago, I went and witnessed a fascinating uh, 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 event uh, on the beach in Konarak. Uh, They in fact do these plays, and there is a story of Topoi, those of you who are Uriya may know this story, but um, it's a story about a young girl who is left behind with her sisters-in-law when her her brothers and father go on this long voyage, and how her sisters-in-law mistreat her, and uh, then she prays to (coughs) uh, Goddess uh, Manusha, and you know the, 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 the brothers come back uh, just in time before really bad things happen to her and rescue her. Anyway it's, it's a folk tale but it's quite clear that this linkage with foreign travel with maritime trade is very very alive in day to day cultural uh, motifs. And it is also shown in Konarak temple, by the way one of the big panels in Konarak temple is fascinating. There is a giraffe being handed over to the king. So clearly, they were not just trading in Southeast Asia, they were also at some point clearly uh, beginning to trade in the western uh, Indian Ocean as well. Of course, this Konarak temple is from much later times that I am talking about, but nonetheless I am just want to point out that this is not only happening in the eastern Indian Ocean, you have similar stuff going on in the western Indian Ocean as Indians begin to trade with the Roman Empire as well and the roots of this Roman Empire and what was going on, has been left to us in a manual called the Periplus of the Erythrean Sea. Now this is a manual, it's just fascinating, it's, it's a Greek, Greek-Egyptian ma- manual and it clearly tells us the routes that were taken by merchants uh, coming from the Roman Empire uh, to trade with India. So where did this start off? So there were two starting parts, you could start off uh, either in Alexandria or you could start off in Tyre or Sidon now, if we started off in Alexandria. Uh, you could go down the Nile a little bit and then there was actually a canal which connected the Nile across from what is now Cairo across to the somewhere near where the Suez is. So the Suez Canal you see today is not the first version of this of the Suez Canal. Even thousands of years ago there was a canal, the problem was of course it's a sandy area so every time it, it was a real problem keeping it clean but there were several attempts to keep it going. There was another route, you could go further up, uh, down the thing to the first cataract and then also there was another path to a place called Berenike, you you had to cross by um, camel from the Nile to the coast, that was another route and then there was another route which I mentioned which was from Lebanon and what is now Israel area, uh, across through the desert through the ruins now of Petra, that was why Petra was so rich because it was a caravan route and then it reached a place called Aqaba, anyway whichever way you came you ended up in the Red Sea and then you basically made your way down the Red Sea trading on either side of the, of, it's a thin narrow uh, uh, sea, So it, 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 um, you, you, you traded your way down it, incidentally the word Erythrean Sea in Greek, Erythrean literally means red and that's, where the, that's what it really means, anyway having made that they then came up to Yemen and from Yemen they made a short hop across to a small island called Socotra. it's a, now why is it called Sokotra, its origins are incidentally Dweepa Sukhadhara, the island of bliss and it was full of Indians and Arabs and it was a major trading point there even today all kinds of graffiti left behind by Indian sailors uh, in some of the caves there and from there you had a choice, now the old route was then to go north to Yemen, along the Baloch coast and then you went across to Gujarat and uh, so on and then made your way down south. Now somewhere in the first century AD, some smart guy called Hippolus discovered that you didn't have to do this rather circuitous route, you could use again the monsoon winds uh, and sail right across to, um, uh, to Kerala and very quickly a major port appeared in Kerala called Mucheri or Muzaris, which is just a little north of modern day Cochin, in, a, uh, it's in and around um, Kranganor uh, in, a, in a village actually called uh, Patanam, uh, they have found a lot of uh, uh, archaeological stuff from that period. So this was suddenly, uh, by certainly the, the early Roman uh, period or even before the empire, was, when it was still a republic, major trading routes were being uh, set up. Uh, uh, this was the period after the destruction of the of the uh, uh, the great temple on the, uh, of the Jews, a uh, significant Jewish population also came and began to settle along this coast and so on. So what were these guys trading with each other? Now the, the Peripolis tells us that the Indians were exporting among other things, uh, cotton, uh, uh, which was very, very highly prized, especially from the Gujarat area, cotton, uh, iron uh, and steel um, uh, goods, because as I mentioned, uh, even um, you know, while iron was an Indian uh, invention, it even in much later times, Indian metallurgy was considered of very high quality. So there was all kinds of steel and iron products. Um, and if you were coming from Muchiri area, they were trading spices. Uh, black pepper was particularly important, but also large numbers of spices that were brought in from uh, Southeast Asia. Uh, Uh, and but then made its way to Muchiri and then the Indians then so these Indonesian spices they made it to the Indians which were then passed on to the Romans and so on and so forth. So this was what the Indians were exporting. So what were the Indians importing? Now among other things Indians were importing Italian wines and very importantly it turns out they were importing women for the royal harems. So this leads us to one of the most important conclusions that we can draw from learning ancient maritime history, which is that even in ancient times, age three parties used to involve foreign liquor and foreign escorts. (laughs) Now this period saw such a lot of trade that it caused a major problem, which was this. That although the Indians were importing lots of women and wine, they were still running a very large current account surplus. Now, how do you, in an ancient world, pay for a current account surplus? You pay for it essentially in gold, and the Romans were handing out so many millions of uh, gold coins that it became a real problem because if you're pushing out a lot of gold to some other country, then you don't have enough gold um, in your own country to print coins and the Roman Empire uh, by the second uh, century AD had a serious crisis be- and you have in the Senate, uh, you know, uh, people like Pliny and others, uh, you know, really arguing, you know, they have a real problem, you know, don't have enough gold to print our own coins, you uh, not need to do something about these Indian chaps. So Emperor Vespasian decided that he was going to Uh, introduce um, some sort of a a ban on trade with India and he tried very hard initially. The problem was of course um, both the Indians and the Jews very quickly figured out various smuggling routes and that whole thing failed. So after a while they opened up trade again. But the Romans now decided that the way they were going to deal with this was to reduce the amount of gold in their coins. So they began to debase their currencies. Now. What did the Indians do in response? The Indians kept accepting these coins. So if you, when you go to archaeological sites across India, uh, along the coast, you have lots of coins and depending on which period you go to, the amount of gold keeps diminishing, of course it goes up and down depending on the time, but by and large the amount of coin, uh, the gold content keeps declining. Now look at how this exactly looks like how the world is today, the Chinese keep running a surplus, the Americans keep running a deficit. How do the Americans pay for it? It's by printing dollars. We keep complaining that this is going to lead to bad things but the Chinese keep accepting them and the Americans keep printing them. In fact, they can't print enough because they are not printing enough because the dollar is still appreciating. So this unfortunately is the way the world works. This was true of Roman times, it's true today. So this is the This is another discussion, but um, one of the reasons I keep saying that, uh, you know, uh, equilibrium as a basis for economics is complete bunkum. There's never been equilibrium and never will be. Anyway, all this good stuff was going on. Then around about the um, uh, sixth, seventh century, the balance of power began to shift. Uh, and of course it culminates uh, suddenly, but, uh, of course it starts out initially with the Arabs becoming more involved but of course uh, with the sudden rise of <coughs> Islam, the Arabs become very very powerful and so the entire western part of the Indian Ocean suddenly comes in the control of um, the Islam, uh, Islamic Caliphate, uh, and they impose then for the next thousand years or so, or a little less than thousand years an almost almost total um, information blackout uh, towards Europe and this is, this is the reason that um, uh, the likes of Vasco de Gama and Columbus would have so much trouble uh, trying to find out information about India because although in ancient times the Europeans knew a lot about India uh, they were uh, really blank, blacked out for a significant period of time but that does not mean that <coughs> <clears throat> the Arabs themselves didn't take advantage of the situation, they were heavily trading with India. Not many people realize that the second oldest mosque in the world is in India, uh, in fact not very far from uh, the site of uh, Muccheri, um, it's called the Cheruman Mosque, it was built while the Prophet was still alive, in fact before he had even conquered uh, Mecca, he was still in Medina uh and very likely the people the, the 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 merchants who built it may have personally known the prophet so it's quite amazing that india actually has one of the oldest uh, mosques in the world and the second oldest mosque in the world it is also as i said uh, has the oldest uh, continuous jewish community world which are also from roughly the same area it also has one of the oldest um uh, christian population in the world which is also incidentally in and around the Muziris area. Um, there's some controversy over whether or not St. Thomas actually came to India or not, but it is fair to say that early Christians did come to India and settle in India very, very early on. Uh, much of their liturgy was written in Syriac, which is very similar to Aramaic, uh, 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 <laughs> which, uh, which is the language which um, Jesus himself would have used. Um, so this community... Where, and I'm telling you, this is just one small, you know, couple of districts in um, in Kerala. Uh, similar stories can be told all the way along the coast up north. I mean, various communities, at various points in time came. Of course, the other famous community that would come and settle here would be the Zoroastrians or Parsis, uh, and so on. So, in this is why, because there was such a lot of trade going back and forth, these ancient communities. Uh, had a footprint in India and when many of these uh, communities got wiped out in their homelands, India somehow managed to carry on a memory of it and with the destruction of the Syrian Christian community just in the last two or three years in Syria, um, uh, it is fair now to say that uh, the Syrian Christian community in India is now the officially the oldest continuous Christian community in the world, so that's quite, uh, quite an amazing history. Uh, to have. Now, meanwhile, a lot of trade was happening on the eastern side as well. Now, very often the ideas that Indians have is that the influence of India always goes out towards Southeast Asia. That is not the case. It was not as if the Southeast Asians were sitting around saying, ah, the Indians have arrived, let's take some uh, gyan from them, and uh, not at all. They were doing their own thing too. So, The Indonesians for example in the 8th, 9th, 10th centuries began to do their own explorations and in fact the first human beings to colonize Madagascar just off the coast of Africa were actually Indonesians. It is quite surprising because Madagascar is actually right next to the origin of the human uh, species. Um, But somehow the Africans did not um, colonize um, Southeast Asia, it was the um, Indonesians who did so. But they were also interacting with India and there was lots of give and take, Um, Nalanda University of which we are all very very proud uh, was partly funded by um, the Sumatran kings, the Srivijaya kings of Sumatra, so um, foreign funded universities uh, is not a new thing in India. But even some of the most um, uh, famous kings of India may in fact have been of Southeast Asian origin and of course there is huge influence in the northeast which I am not even getting into because that is not a maritime influence but uh, and it can be a subject of another, uh, another, uh, another session but even in southern India one of the greatest kings of uh, India was a guy called the Pallava King called Nandi Varman the second. Now the story of Nandi Varman II second is quite fascinating because <coughs> Nandi Varman II has left us his story on the panels of the Vaikun per- Peruman uh, temple in Kanchi, where it says that somewhere in the beginning of the 8th century, the king of the Pallavas died out and there was real panic because there was, he, didn't, he died early and didn't have children and the Chalukyas were going to turn up and take over the place, there was basically chaos. So a grand assembly was called uh, of all the chieftains and scholars etc and they decided that they were going to go and hunt for (coughs) uh, another line of the Pallavas that had many many years ago gone off to a distant land. So there was a king, (coughs) uh, there was a uh, younger brother of a uh, a Pallava king a century earlier who um, had gone off to a foreign land, married the local princess and had become the king and his lineage evidently was still alive somewhere. very hurriedly they you know a group of uh, learned Brahmins were put together and they were put on a boat from Mahabalipuram and were sent off to some place to uh, get this king and they turned up at this, uh, this uh, court of this king or and they asked for uh, one of his sons, he had four sons this, uh, this uh, uh, descendant of the Bhima and <coughs> the first three refused to come but the youngest one who was only 12 years old at that time agreed and that young boy then got into the, got in and made his way back to, 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 to Kanchi and he was anointed at, as Nandi Varman the second and he became the great, uh, became a great king and he, many of the temples of the Pallava period are from, uh, uh, from because of Nandi Varman's uh, contribution. Now who was this Nandi Varman and where did he come from? Now if you go to this temple and you wander around you'll find something very odd about all the faces that are there uh, uh, carved on the walls, a very significant proportion of them are clearly oriental, there are even Chinese faces there, yes, Vaikunth Perumal Temple, Vaikunth Perumal Temple and Kanchi. Now my guess and you know, he doesn't mention it, but there are many signs that the Pallavas they prided themselves of being of the having their female lineage of that of the Nagas. In fact, it's there in some of their inscriptions. So while we do not know where the Pallavas themselves came from, the fact that they had this great pride in this female Naga lineage suggests that they had a, at least from the female side, a Southeast Asian origin. And this is interesting because of course the Pallavas have uh, enormous influence on Southeast Asia. You know their scripts of many countries even today are derived from Pallava script, right? like Thai and so on. So clearly they had a lot of influence, and there is in fact even a, a, an inscription of Nandi Varman II in Malaysia, and it's very interesting where it is. It's in the bujang Valley, the Valley of the Snakes. So my guess is that he was possibly from Cambodia, Malaysia area, and he 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 came. Uh, in the 8th century and took took over this kingdom and it's quite amazing that today you know uh, we would not imagine that one of the great kings of uh, you know southern India was actually um, from that part of the world. Now history of course kept going and then a somewhat better known episode happens which is the rise of the Chola Empire and the great raids that the Cholas did in Southeast Asia in the 11th century. Now, why did the Cholas were the Cholas doing raids on Southeast Asia in the 11th century? Now, we don't know for sure, but one of the reasons, very likely reasons, and there's some circumstantial evidence to back it up, is that it's very likely that the, the Cholas and the Song Empire of China were trading heavily with each other. There are in fact lots of so remains of Hindu temples along the coast of uh, China from roughly that period and it seems like the Srivijaya may have been kind of getting in the way and asking for too too much toll, now like all Indians when faced with high tolls they go berserk, you see that every day on uh, Indian highways. So not surprisingly they got up and said we must do something, so they got all their friends together at Nagapatnam, sailed across and beat those chaps up and it clearly says at Kadaram. There was the, you know, the, the, the King of Kadaram was defeated, his elephant and all his, all his uh, various um, treasures were taken away and they were brought back. But this does not seem to have caused too much problems because a little bit later, uh, the Cholas seem to have built a fairly strong alliance with um, the, the Srivijaya and the kingdoms of that area. And this is an interesting thing that is going on here in the context of understanding the geopolitics of that area. You see, the way we think about um, the the history of Sri Lanka and the southern tip of India is that there was a Sinhalese Tamil conflict, now we tend to be colored in this because of much more recent episodes of uh, separatist movement in northern Sri Lanka. What actually was happening for almost all of history except this recent episode, was in fact the Pandyas of Madurai and the Sinhalese of Sri Lanka were in a pact against the Cholas who were from the further up the Kaveri uh, Basin and the Cholas seem to have had uh, allies who were in Southeast Asia. So basically this was the geopolitics of the time, the Pandya-Sinhalese alliance um, against the Chola Southeast Asian uh, alliance and you can see that it goes back and forth. Uh, quite a lot um, but it's quite fascinating that the geopolitics of that area uh, was driven by these uh, very complex uh, alliances now the question is what was the basis what are the, the the structure the the economic structures that were allowing all this trade to go back and forth now you may get the impression that it was all heroic traders uh, and merchants um, who were putting their money on life on, 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 online and were trading with making these great voyages. But in fact it was a lot more sophisticated than that. Um, many of these voyages actually happened <coughs> not by individuals going back and forth, but through corporatized guilds, they are almost like companies and many of them were caste based companies, many of, most of them were in fact not caste based companies, uh, some of them had names like the 500 and so on and so they were almost like um, corporates and the multinational corporates and many of them lasted hundreds of years who were doing this trade going back and forth. Some of them hired uh, mercenaries to, um, to back up their uh, and protect their trade routes and they were very very powerful and uh, there were several of them in Southeast, uh, southern India. Um, <coughs> and what is even more fascinating is that much of the financing of this was done by the temples. Now the general impression is that the temples were rich because the Rajas were all handing over large amounts of money to the, uh, the, the to the, these temples but that may have been the seed money. But one of the reasons many of these temples had such a lot of gold was that in fact they functioned as banks and we have copper plate, um, lots of copper plate um, uh, remains of uh, contracts between the guilds. So there were merchant guilds, there were artisan guilds and they had contracts. Then there were contracts between the merchant guilds and the financiers which were the temples Uh, and that was kind of the structure on which much of this was going on. But then around about the uh, starting with the 11th century but really taking off in the 12th, 13th century century really, this whole structure suddenly came undone. In India of course there was the Turkish conquest. and that completely through the whole, uh, it was not just uh, political control but one of the things that seems to have happened was that the destruction of the temples really messed up the financing of this whole network. So I have for many many years wondered why um, after the Turkish conquest there is a dramatic decline of um, Indian particularly Hindu uh, merchants who are sailing back and forth. The, the historical explanation is, oh, you know, it was because of caste restrictions and, you know, these Brahmins are bad chaps, didn't allow any way to cross the seas and all that. But that, of course, makes no sense. For the simplest reason, that the upper caste were some of the biggest beneficiaries of this trade. They were the merchant class, of course, but the, the, the ruling classes, the Kshatriya classes, at various points in time, benefited from the revenues. But the biggest beneficiaries, of course, were the Brahmins themselves, because they were enormously high... Uh, highly regarded in in Southeast Asian courts and many of them sailed across, I mentioned you know, in fact one of the pioneers Kondinya was himself a Brambin, so there was no real reason for them to perhaps suddenly stop and I think a large part of this perhaps had to do a collapse in the network of financing uh, that was holding this whole thing uh, together. There is also a similar collapse just a few years later in the Middle East and this happens, interestingly. Just like when the Turks were invading India and conquering it, at about the same time, Islam itself was in enormous crisis. Because just, um, just 20, 25 years after uh, Mahmoud Ghori came into India, you had the Mongols who were sacking um, large parts of Iran and then ultimately sacked Baghdad and so on. So whole, that whole network, the whole setup, suddenly just was in complete crisis. And It was just about recovering from this a century later when suddenly very large ships turned up. This is in the early 1400s, led by a eunuch Chinese general called Zheng He. And he brought these massive ships. I mean, these ships were really enormous. I mean, they are modern, uh, they are modern scales. And this huge Series of treasure ships that came in in the early 1400s that made voyages across through Southeast Asia to India, making its way to Africa, and there were a series of them um, led by this general Zheng He, who was a eunuch, incidentally, and it was not incidentally a, a, a voyage of discovery because many of these routes that I was talking about were very well established, as I mentioned earlier what they were trying to do was really showing who was the boss and so these Chinese came to this part of the world and they were going around <coughs> essentially one by sheer scale overawing the, the locals but very quickly they began to also meddle with the politics of this area. So they captured one of the claimants to the, to the throne of Sri Lanka and took him back and then they brought him back and then tried to place him on the throne. Uh, they have, may have uh, changed the Zamorin uh, or Samudrin of um, uh, uh, of in Kerala, they may have uh, of Calicut a or is, is the correct word I think uh, or maybe not the correct pronunciation anyway. So they may have interfered there, so they were messing around with the politics of various places using their muscle but one, the possibly the biggest uh, influence of that however, was in Southeast Asia and the Islamization of Southeast Asia, which, as I will show you, was really a Chinese project. Now, remember, after the 12th, 13th century, the Hindus of India began became much less important in the trading networks outside of India. But the Southeast Asian Hindus, particularly of Java, were very, very active. And in fact, it was really in the 13th, 14th century where you have this massive expansion of the Majapahit Empire based out of Java and basically took over a fair section of what is now Indonesia even parts of what is Malaysia and they were the guys who when Jang He was making these great voyages were looking on all of this very very suspiciously and in fact on a couple of occasions they captured some Chinese envoys and decapitated them just to send a signal. It didn't go down very well with the Chinese who then <clears throat> began to encourage um, a alternative center of power in a place called Malacca which is in Malaysia just north of Singapore, uh, they had a king called Parmeshwara who they encouraged to convert to Islam, they in fact Parmeshwara also visited the Chinese uh, emperor and they gave him a lot of money and then as a consequence of with, with Chinese backing the Kingdom of Malacca became increasingly more powerful and the Majapahit began to withdraw and so over the next two centuries um, there, were, there was a dramatic shift uh, in the religious composition of Southeast Asia. But the Chinese themselves didn't hang around uh, to benefit from this. Because while they may have been very successful with these great voyages, uh, in, in, uh, with these big sh- ships, as always what really gets you is not um, military power, but politics back at home. Now what happened is that the emperor who was backing... Um, Zhang He uh, died and the next emperor (coughs) uh, was uh, essentially under the influence of the Confucians uh, lobby in the court and they were very suspicious of the eunuch lobby who were mostly, uh, they were particularly in the trading business. So the Confucians essentially uh, came up with the idea that the rest of the world had been you know engaged with and nothing of great value had really come back from these great voyages, the rest of the world was clearly too backward uh, to be engaged with, so the great treasure fleet was essentially allowed to rot and the records of Zheng He's great exploits were actually suppressed. It's only really in the 20th century that we began to rediscover them and so that was essentially the end of Chinese naval power in the 15th century which which opened up the space for Vasco de Gama uh, who turned up uh, in the end of the 1400s. Now much of this is well known and I am running out of time, so I am going to skip through a bit here. Um, as you all know that Vasco de Gama uh, came <coughs> uh, to Calicut and very quickly within a, a decade or a little more than a decade, the Portuguese created a bunch of these uh, what should I say? Uh, staging points outposts along the coast all around Southeast Asia, they also established a reputation for extreme cruelty. Now, this is not a time where people got easily uh, scared of cruelty i mean these are These are people who have just gone through the Turks and the Mongols, but even in that context, the Portuguese were thought to be way off the charts I mean just to give you an example, Vasco de Gama would routinely, I mean, and other Portuguese, Vasco de Gama himself did this, would take uh, ships taking Muslims for the Hajj across uh, to, to, uh, from the Indian coast to uh, Arabia and they would simply set the ships alight, alight in mid-ocean with all the people on them, just to terror, create terror um, in, the, in the minds of people who were not listening to them. So very, very quickly they began to establish these um, outposts and using maritime power and cannons which they they had, they established this network Um, and for about uh, the first, I would say 130, 140 years or so, the Portuguese were the great maritime power in the Indian Ocean. Now this does not mean that they didn't get any resistance at all, Uh, they did. there was the uh, Sultans of Gujarat who tried to get the Turks to send in uh, ships to try and fight them, fight the Portuguese, there was a great battle just off uh, Dew, uh, in which the Portuguese essentially destroyed the Turkish fleet. Um, but there were other indigenous uh, uh, attempts as well and one of the most successful of them is almost entirely forgotten today, was actually a warrior queen called Abakka. Now she and her daughter and granddaughter for almost 80 years, uh, resisted the Portuguese uh, from their kingdom and outpost in a place called Ullal, which is very very close to Mangalore and this warrior queen, um, she was a queen of course, This remember this coast has a very strong uh, matrilineal uh, and occasionally matriarchal tradition and she uh, using coastal ships, she used to essentially uh, trap uh, Portuguese ships occasionally sinking them, capturing them uh, on several occasions, defeating the Portuguese. The first Queen Abakka was herself uh, captured and killed, but her daughter and then her granddaughter kept up the uh, the war. Now, the oral histories of that coastline have lots of stories about Abakka. In fact. There are uh, dance drama and other uh, Yaksha and other other performances done with the name of Abakka but there are almost no histories written about her, certainly not in English, I believe there are some in uh, Tulu which is the language of that area. But it is quite shocking that uh, we Indians do not remember uh, these stories of resistance, we would much rather actually know a lot more about the European side of the story. Oddly enough the Europeans themselves do mention occasionally Abakka but you know we, we very rarely talk about this but so I think one of the int- things that I want to do through this uh, attempt to uh, at least document some part of our maritime history is to bring out some of these stories. Now the Portuguese control on the Indian Ocean however did not last uh, much into the 1600s because the Dutch and many many people forget the Dutch East India Company arrived in the scene and through the 17th century they became the dominant power, maritime power in the Indian Ocean. The Dutch East India Company (coughs) was so powerful that it could essentially dictate terms to everybody else including the English East India Company and on several occasions, um, you know defeated them, sank their fleets and did other bad things to them. By the late 1600s, 1700s, they had basically taken over what is now Indonesia. They had taken over um, Sri Lanka, and they were beginning to eye India, particularly the Kerala coast, which was the source of black pepper, when they came up against a very tiny kingdom ruled by a chap called Martanda Varma. Martanda Varma, again, unless you happen to be from southern Kerala, you probably have never heard of him. But Marthanda Varma <coughs> decided that he was going to take on this, um, these guys and he trained his uh, soldiers uh, to take on um, European fighting tactics and he defeated the Dutch in a major battle in a place called Kolachal, which is very close to um, Kanyakumari, just north of Kanyakumari and he completely decimated them and if it hadn't been for Martanda Varma, I would have been given this lecture to you in Dutch, now following this defeat, Um, He somehow also managed to convince their Dutch commander (coughs) to switch sides to him. And he then began to train his army using um, European tactics and European guns. So using this uh, Dutch, uh, Delanoi was his name, and he, he basically got very tiny kingdom but he very quickly then uprooted the Dutch from all along that coastline. And the shock of that was so large that essentially from this point onwards, the Dutch East India Company went into decline and opened up the space for the French and then ultimately uh, the English East India Company. Now I'm going to stop here because A, um, I think it might be fun to have a conversation, uh, and secondly, my throat is beginning to hurt. <laughs> Thank
0: you, sir for a wonderful talk. Uh, we can have a small question at the session. How much the sab- Shabbos have shaped the civilization is spreading
1: from the First of all, you've got to remember one thing. This idea that um, Buddhism and Hinduism and all these things are separated out um, as separate things is not quite true in uh, ancient history. They were seen as being part of the same continuum and they very much spread together. Uh, even in places where you would think that it was Buddhism that was spreading, it's actually a mixture. Of some time, so even in Sri Lanka, as you know, you, the Bo- uh, ancient Buddhism, and even in many many ways, the modern Buddhism in Sri Lanka, is uh, very much got lots of mixtures of Hinduism in it. In fact, the most sacred temple of the Sri Lankans, which is the in Kandy, the temple of the Tooth. Uh, if you if you visit it, you have to first pass through a series of Hindu shrines before you reach the main temple. Uh, and this is in in various ways true uh, even in Southeast Asia, even in Japan, uh, the Japanese one would think the main influence is Buddhist but in fact you go to both Shinto and Buddhist shrines in Japan even today and there are shrines to Saraswati, Uh, Vedic homes are done uh, in many of these temples. So this separation first of all, I I would like to point out is a fairly arbitrary uh, separation, Um, they were seen as being generally part of, uh, you know some people had a preference this way, some people had a preference that way, but they flipped around quite a lot. Now Shaivism however in particular had a l- stronger influence in certain parts, uh, certain periods of um, uh, Cambodian and uh, Khmer uh, and, uh, Khmer uh, history and uh, Cham history, that's the Vietnamese history was heavy, heavily strongly influenced by Shaivism. Um, Although the Cham uh, Kingdom was sacked in the 15th century and then went into severe decline in the 17th and 18th centuries, there still is today uh, about 50,000 Vietnamese Cham's who follow Hinduism and they mostly follow, uh, they entirely follow Shaivite Hinduism. Um, About a year ago I actually visited uh, Vietnam and met some of them Uh, and they told me a very fascinating story that to this day they believe that when uh, a Cham dies, uh, Nandi comes to uh, take their souls and takes it to their holy land in India, so this remains a very strong influence of Shaivism, but this is also there scattered across of course Bali remains a major centre of Hinduism in Southeast Asia, but there are scattered uh, communities of Hindus even in um, uh, java, and then there are other uh, sort of second order influences which are there, which are there in many other ways, even in Buddhist countries. So there is uh, enormous uh, influence of uh, Shaivism to answer your question. <laughs> yeah, I will go down that, that way and then you. Yeah? Yeah, particularly on Oman. In 17th to
2: 18th 17th century, before the British came to the picture, the, uh, the uh, uh, state of Hormuz and others. Hmm. Uh, they were a uh, connect of uh, Tipu Sultan with Omanis. Uh, 18th century, uh, late 18th century. 18th century. And they eventually were uh, well known for building the ships, very large, big, big ships. Yes. And those ships were the uh, catalysts of carrying out for all the trade in the inter. So, this, this, so um,
1: this link between Indians and Omanis is much, much older than that. Much older than that. So, going back to Harappan times. Exactly. And uh, in fact, the 18th, 19th century ships are... Uh, the last phase of this, and, yeah. uh, the earlier phase and of this... And they
2: have been logging the Indian woods from Himalayas. Yes,
1: and it's all... Yeah, yeah. e- exactly, in fact, they would very often get the ships constructed on this side and taken across. Exactly. And not, Just south of Bombay, there are still that old style of making ships is still alive. And you have
2: been mentioning about the large ships coming out from Greece, uh, yes. uh, the,
1: uh, to this part of
2: the uh, hemisphere. Actually, those uh, logs, uh, the ships were built of the Himalayan woods. No, not sure. Himalayan woods. There were two they types. There were two types of ships.
1: There been trading between one and the mm-hmm. th- Yes, but not Himalayan. So I've looked into this. There were two types of ships going back and forth. So there were the Roman <coughs> Egyptian ships, which were built with um, very often with uh, Lebanese wood it was one of the ways, um, and they were nailed together very often. But the Indian ships and the Omani ships and the Arab ships were not uh, built by nailing them together. So they were either made from some wood coming from some parts of Africa or from the western huts. But they were actually interestingly tied together. They were stitched together. Stitched together? Yeah. Uh,
2: there was a reference I read somewhere that the uh, uh, shipbuilding techniques, hmm. that, uh, well that, uh, those days it was the technology I had uh, were actually taken from Oman to Egypt and Egypt was entirely dependent on the Oman Yes, so there
1: was two different types of ships going back and forth. So the European uh, style, but the Indo-Arabic style was basically of stitching. So, and there is a lot of uh, controversy over why did the Indians and Arabs prefer a stitched uh, stitching system because ultimately it cost these guys a lot, because, it because cool. if it cool. the cost was very high, no, it came as a cost because it could carry cannons later on. So it, Later on when the Portuguese came, one of the reasons the Indians could not adapt quickly was their shipbuilding technique did not allow, these stitch ships couldn't take cannons. But, why did they for the previous almost you know 1500 years, build this peculiar kind of ships, because after all they knew about iron, iron is actually an Indian invention, uh, they even knew how to do rust-proof iron as you know, we know from the uh, some in uh, in Kutuk. So why didn't they use nails? And the reason for that is quite, uh, the most logical reason for it is the following. You see they were sailing back and forth during the monsoon. Because they were using the monsoon. Now, they, now, if you look at the Indian coastline, there aren't very many harbors. So when you came towards very close to the coast, or if you were trying to take it up a river, you had you were dealing with sandbars, or since there were no harbors, you would have to basically drag these ships onto the onto the um, onto the no no you would have to drag it onto the beach. Uh, then you had to go through the Maldives. There was high risk that you would get stuck in an atoll. So basically, what you wanted was a ship who had somewhat flexible hull that would not fall apart if you hit a sandbar, and the premium of this was high enough that you were willing to take the inefficiency of having a stitch ship. So uh, that is the most likely reason why this is, uh, in fact uh, this technique is still alive in a few villages along our coast, I am trying to document it and I am trying to encourage the Indian West Coast and even one or two places on the East Coast, I am trying to encourage the Indian Navy to help me build one of them so that I can sail it, while I am still young enough to do it. (laughs) Yes, there was a gentleman there.
2: Why are the prestigious books, NCERT books, state board books, don't
0: no, say? No, no, no. no. no Have so you already from Because you see, no dynasty in Delhi came from Kursa. <laughs> so it's not far. <your> <laughs> <laughs> the NCERT books doesn't tell you. To it, to all it, the, the, the NCERT books is the history of all the dynasties from Patliputra, followed by dynasties in Delhi if you do it what part of this narrative is entirely your fault i'm just trying to help you along
1: gradually without to do a good job and put one of your guys up there and assisting i not my where but anyway i mean jokes apart even in odisha uh, you will be surprised significant proportion of this history is actually being reconstructed relatively modern times. they have been remembered in oral history but it's relatively modern times that some of this is being put together, Um, even these archaeological finds around Lake Chilika for example are actually not very old, just uh, I think two three few weeks ago we found a major site just outside Bhuvaneshwar, you may have read it in the newspapers of a a Bronze Age site which is interesting because there aren't too many Bronze Age sites in this part, so it suggests that there was some Bronze Age at least in Odisha. Um, But yes, that history is finally being rewritten, Um, it is also many other things need to be rewritten about this. For example, this whole idea uh, about Ashoka and his relationship with Kalinga, I have said this in other, uh, in a a, a previous lecture that this whole idea that Ashoka went to Kalinga, sacked it then felt very sorry for the Uriya and changed his religion and became a pacifist, there is in fact no evidence of this at all by all indications, Ashoka was a Buddhist when he attacked Kalinga, having attacked and caused mayhem by his own admission and there is actually, uh, there is now the site of Tosali has been found, so there is even uh, archaeological evidence of the carnage. Um, He then did not become a pacifist at all for the very simple reason, none of the Ashokan inscriptions in Odisha mention his regret, none of them if you wanted to have such great regret and you wanted to apologize to the Uriya, surely the place to apologize to them was in Udisha. in fact the only place where he expresses his regret are in inscriptions which are now far away in, in places like Pakistan and even those inscriptions uh, you have to read properly, so yes he does, does this one nice paragraph which is there in all your NCRT books about how um, he felt regret but just a f- couple of paragraphs down. Um, he then uh, says that, you know, uh, you forest tribes remember that notwithstanding the regret I'm feeling for what I did to those chaps, if you behave badly, I will do the same thing to you. So now if you think that is pacifism, that's uh, your, your way of thinking, uh, you know, I am of freedom of expression but I have a different view. <laughs> yes, the gentleman there and then you.
2: Uh, at Madison wrote his economic history in which he documents that India uh, ruled the economic history at least from first century to fifteenth century. Uh, though not much of is said about how you know how the symmetric relations were there. So I'm just guessing if India had so much of uh, maritime power, how were the re- economic relations? Were there relations? Relations included the the gunboat diplomacy and the, the hard power as well. So and once in a while, yes. I mean the Cholas. Yeah, and a connected one is. So we know a lot of strategic culture from the from the north. For instance, we talk about Arthashastra and Kautilya. There is also a lot of strategic culture between Cholas and Pandavas, but that is not so much documented. Pandya, pa- sorry, Pandyas. That is not so much documented. How much of the influence do they have
0: with the Southeast Asian? Uh, Enormous influence. I mean, uh, you're talking about strategic culture. The yes, there
1: is. So uh, I, off the top of my head, I can't quite remember. I think Surya Surya Varman II. I think. Don't hold me to it. Was the one of the major kings of <coughs> of the of uh, uh, of the Khmers of Angkor, and uh, he in fact uh, sent his chariot, his war chariot, as a gift to one of the Cholas, uh, which was a major deal because I mean um, uh, you know you don't send your war chariot. To, so clearly these guys were were sending these major gifts back and forth. They were signing all kinds of. They were dealing with all kinds of. Uh, strategic uh, maneuvers, very often against first, the, 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 the Chinese were doing the same thing, I just gave you one, inf- one in one uh, example, but the Chinese were trying to build a relationship with the Sri Vijaya, while the Khmer's were trying to do what with South India, the, then the Pandya's on the other side were doing with Sri Lanka, so all of this kind of uh, interlinkages and movements were going on, uh, in the middle of all of this of course there were the the, the uh, corporatized guilds which were basically multinational companies which are also had their own armed uh, forces, uh, many of them had uh, particularly Tamil mercenaries which you see them popping up everywhere um, including in the uh, you know the Sri Lankan army very often their crack troops were Tamil mercenaries um, but you also see that on the other side, so I talked about Indian meteorology which is very very uh, influential in ancient history but even in medieval times um, the Middle East was importing lots of steel uh, weapons and so on from uh, India uh, in some ways you could say the sword of Islam was Indian made so and, that's, and, the, and the technique of the Damascus sword which was used in the Crusade, uh, during the Crusades by the Islamic side was essentially made with Indian steel technology and it is very likely they imported the metallurgists also who were again i'm guessing here but genetics and other proofs uh, circumstantial proofs suggest these guys were then became the ancestors of the gypsies the roma essentially the descendants of indian uh, meteorologists, and uh, arms makers steel workers who went there um, during the uh, crusades they then later on worked with the turks who then when they invaded Eastern Europe, they went into Europe and that's how they spread. And even in Turkish uh, records, you can clearly see the the, the, the Roma are clearly involved in metallurgical type things. Their problem was, of course, they couldn't deal with the industrial revolution which completely made their technology irrelevant, uh, but even into the 19th century, they were very much involved in making small uh, iron mongering kind of activities. So. Uh, that, that is possibly the link to that, by the way there were lots of Indian mercenaries everywhere as well, um, this is forgotten, even in ancient times there were Indian mercenaries, Indian, uh, Indian Mahouts and Indian elephants going all over fighting wars in the Middle East, um, uh, in, in, in very ancient times the Greeks were using them, the Macedonians and Greeks, uh, later on even in Karbala there is a tradition amongst uh, one group of uh, uh, Punjabi Brahmins, uh, that one of their ancestors had fought for the Shia side in Karbala and had died there. So there are all kinds of things, and there are Indian mercenaries in many other places as well. Um, so um, you know this tradition that we have to this day. If you go, India is the largest contributor to the UN peacekeeping missions. So, so this is a very old tradition. Yes. So when you were saying about the Turkish
3: invasion and the destruction of Temple that was crippling down the financial thing, yes. uh, what I have studied from and well, like I tried to reach from so many sources, it was like Temple and those other buildings, palatial once represented the power of the dynasty that existed before. Their destruction was inevitable. So that...
1: No, maybe inevitable, but you see what was happening, it was a network. So... I am sure some temples were in good times, bad times and other things. But what happens is in a very relatively short period, Malik Kafur particularly, in one, one series of raids, he just demolishes it. So, what may have been much more an organic process is suddenly uprooted in one shot and just doesn't recover. Now, I am guessing here, that, I mean at the very least it would have caused serious financial havoc. But, but it was for a very limited territory. It took a lot of time for Turks to make a massive empire. No, it didn't. So this is one of the interesting things about this: is that the Indo-Turkic uh, interaction uh, for a long period of time is actually fairly balanced. So um, uh, you have a Hindu kingdom in the 10th century in as far as uh, Afghanistan, and they get evicted by Mahmud Ghazni's father and Sabuktigin, and then Mahmud Ghazni, and then in the in the 11th century, early 11th century, uh, between thousand and thousand twenty-five they make these raids which are famously seventeen raids incidentally he didn't win all of those raids some of those raids he actually got defeated particularly in Gujarat also yeah. I'd like to ask Sorry. about
3: non yeah. uh, It which was like in a, in a in a in a very concrete manner says like he was brought up from somewhere so, it no, so he tells his own
1: story uh-huh. he, on these inscriptions he doesn't mention specifically what his homeland was mm-hmm. I have that was my contribution to the conversation, That look at all the faces of these people. Yeah. They look they look suspiciously without Southeast Asia. And even the names as well, like it's
3: Angkor Wat was built by Surya Varman. And yes, Pallabas the, well, just, the Pallabas also had these Varman's at the end of it. Yeah. And about Shanghai I was to ask. So huh? like about Admiral Shanghai. Chamza? Yeah. Okay. Huh. You, you said, like, you know, I forgot the name of that chap who... You have to ask was, one question, otherwise, otherwise... Sir, uh, this is my last question. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so, sir, like, one uh, chap who written, it, like, completely about him. He's not even, not even regarded as a historian. He's generally now regarded as
0: pseudo-history. And also, like...
1: No, actually, no, there's so... This is, I think his name is Giles Milton or something. He's written this... He was right? Yeah, about 14, 28, 26 or something like that. Yes, Well... He, he he makes the case that the Chinese went to America before um, before uh, Columbus did. Now my reading of that book is they certainly had the technology to do it. But having read the book I was not quite convinced that they actually made the journey. The fact that you can do it does not mean you actually did it. So I think the the, the, the uh, evidence that they actually made the journey is much more circumstantial and I think quite deep. But they, there is no doubt that they had the technology. I mean, in fact, the ships that the Chinese were using in the early 15th century are like you know a few hundred years ahead of the, what the Europeans would use to you know conquer the Americas. So yes, I'm going to uh, I'll let some people here, yes. tell maritime. Uh,
0: contribution.
1: Satvahanas and yeah, the thing about the Satvahanas is, in fact, they are very sad that the Satvahanas are not uh, more talked about in Indian history because Satvahanas were one of the great dynasties. They ruled over most of peninsular India for hundreds of years, much longer than uh, the Mauryas existed. And uh, between them and an Udiya king called Karavela, they basically destroyed the uh, the Mauryan Empire. Uh, at uh, about two generations after Ashoka. I mean after Ashoka it already was in decline, but between kharavela and the Satvahanas they destroyed it. But having said that, the Satvahanas then went on to rule these uh, areas and they were of course given their geog- geography uh, very much maritime. Um, they were in charge of much of Southern India when many of these Roman trade and other things were really starting off. Uh, so yes, they were very very important. Uh, similarly, the the Vijayanagar Empire was absolutely critical when the Portuguese actually turned up in, in, in Indian coasts. Uh, much of southern India, the southern uh, half of peninsular India, or the southern one-third of India, whichever way you like it, uh, but basically was ruled by the Vijayanagar. And Vijayanagar, the city of Vijayanagar was uh, in the early, <coughs> in the in the 15th and early 16th century, uh, till it was destroyed, uh, the largest city in the world. And we have plenty of records uh, and Portuguese and Iranian ambassadors and travelers have written about it. There's plenty written about it. Uh, it's one of the most fascinating places to visit. Uh, in fact, two places you should see before you die which I've linked to this. Uh, one is Angkor and the other is uh, Hampi, which is Vijayanagar. Yes. We
3: are knowing that uh, you, are to- you are going to talk about maritime. So, I have very small question, two questions, sir. One, national level.
1: One question
3: please, because I have run out okay. of time in exactly five minutes. Okay sir, actually uh, in your speech you talked about Mojres, so there is a project sir in Kerala, Mojres uh, Heritage Project, okay sir, which is going to deal with the spice of Kerala and they are going to again revive that legacy, that heritage, I can sing in that word, that heritage to Egypt, uh, that country sir, Gulf country and even uh, west.
1: No, no, so Kerala has always had this link with Middle East and with the West. So it's th- At one point in history, this port which I mentioned, Muzaris, which or Mucharipatnam, from the Indian pronunciation, was the biggest port in the world, this and Tamralipti. And so yes, they had these links with the Romans first, later on with the Arabs uh, and so on, uh, till about 1300 and something, when the Periyar river, there was a big flood and it completely destroyed, I said climate can be quite a devastating thing. It destroyed this port, and as a result of which the main port activity shifted to Cochin and uh, to uh, Calicut. But before those, the main port was uh, this Muchiri. Yes. Last question, and we have to. start. port in Gujarat and the Little bit, I
2: would say in and Why is the eastern side of
1: the well not as developed? it be easier well but, but it 's not historically not necessarily true The point is if you look at long enough history, there have been points in history where the west coast was more active and the East coast was more active so it 's not like they 're always even there are it 's flows and ebbs and all kinds of things going on. Uh, it happens to be that in present recent times um, the, the the western coast is most uh, more uh, industrialized or entrepreneurial um, but um, You know, even in colonial times, remember the capital of India was Calcutta. So, these things ebb and flow. Um, So, you know, I wouldn't read, even in the grand scheme of history, it probably doesn't matter. I've got to literally stop now because I've got to go somewhere. Thank you so much.